You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Genesis 22, I think, is one of, if not the most difficult chapter in the entire Bible. Why are you preaching at Easter Sunday, Aaron? I asked myself the same question. I think it's one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. It's a story that's hard to come to terms with and often misunderstood. But it's a story of faith amidst a lot of confusion. Faith not just in the plan and will and doctrine of God, but in the character of God. It's the story of us, the slow, uncomfortable walk of Christian faith but also to behold God's loving provision and character, to see him show up in the most unexpected of ways, just in time. Genesis 22, starting from verse 1, reads this. Follow along. After these things, God tested this man named Abraham. And if you've been following along with us, you can take a look back at previous messages. We've stuck with Abraham for 10 weeks now. And said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. This is God speaking to Abraham. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now you see why this tends to be a very difficult chapter. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, sees the mountain. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire or the things for the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Doesn't seem like Isaac is fighting it, although he had to, he's a teenager at this point, he had to have known a little bit what's going on. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. You understand why this is a difficult chapter to wrap your head around. I've never really come to terms with it. 
It's a story I've known for a long time. I think I was taught with like, you know, flashcards in Sunday school. It was taught like so lightheartedly. Oh yeah, Abraham just tells a kill. What are you willing to do for God? Well, not that. <laughs> like, not that. It seems so obvious. You know, if it's merely about obedience, just what are you willing to do for God? There's a lot of questions, though. I mean, would you do that? I can say flat out, I wouldn't. So what do, we, what do we do with this story? What is this all about? You know, at best, it doesn't seem consistent with the character of God, does it? It seems like almost a different person talking. It doesn't seem consistent. And at worst, it seems like an evil trick. That there's a promised child that God says, through this child, I promise, you will have descendants. This is a child that's been promised for years. And then all of a sudden, one morning, Abraham wakes up and says, I'm going to take him away from you. And you're going to do, the dirt, and you're going to do it. Seems like an evil trick. Can you, and then you have to ask the question, is this God even good? For one thing, can, can I follow him? But the other bigger question is, is he even good? You know, is this, this is the promised child. For all this just to end, like, can I trust this God? Was it worth it? Where is the hope in this story? Where's the other side? And you ask, why now, Aaron? This is Easter Sunday, for crying out loud. Let's just sing, Christ the Lord is risen today, and call it a day. <laughs> yeah, I asked myself the same question. Probably should have, now that I read this story. I'm like, why am I doing this today, of all things? This should have been a, this should have been a Sunday night when no one is there. We'll talk about this passage. For one, it's there, and I had to address it. I do think that there is, that, that there, it can be understood. However, there's, there's always questions. I got thinking, though, yesterday as I woke up. Nikki and I, thank you, Mom and Dad, for watching our kids. Nikki and I woke up, and we went to Monogram to get the two eggs Miss Monica's. Megan took our order. Thank you, Megan. And man, that pour over, like, you, I make, we make coffee at home, but that pour over hits different. At, like, it was so, did you make that? Oh, it was good. Man, that was good. I'm not being paid by Megan. Megan doesn't get commission off today. Uh, and I sat there, and, you know, Nikki and I were just having a normal breakfast, just the two of us. You know, but there's something in Chris, Christian tradition called the Holy Saturday comes between death and resurrection. And, and I had to put myself in the shoes of those disciples on Saturday morning. Nikki and I are just eating eggs, Miss Monica's. But what's going through the mood of those disciples who had fallen, followed Jesus for three years and now they wake up the next day having no idea what's coming next, but just witnessing death? This is how it ends? All that for... For, for, for what? Does it just ends here? You know, it's that in-between experience of, God, you said you were going to do this, but I don't see, I don't see it happen. That's, the, that's Holy Saturday. That's the, 
God, God said he was going to do this, but I haven't seen the resurrection yet. We're given no details about that Saturday in the Bible, the mood of those disciples or those followers, but I'm sure there was a lot of existential questioning of what was that all about? What about everything he said? How do we even trust this? Is this God even good? Is that it? Yeah, you've been there, right? In your faith? That in-between experience of existential dread? God, here is what you said, and then you're waiting for him to actually show up and do it? That's why I think this is a story of God showing up in an unexpected way, just like that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Showing up precisely when he means to, which is a quote from another story, which I didn't mean to use. Verse 1 says, after these things, God tested Abraham. It's really important that it starts off because the chapter's going to start, it says God tested Abraham so you know that Isaac isn't going to die. The reader is supposed to know that Isaac isn't going to die, but Abraham doesn't know that. This is merely a test. This isn't real. This is merely a test. But Abraham doesn't know that. Testing means to show what something really is. That's what testing is. Some of you are walking into exam season right now, and you may hate the test, but the purpose of the test is to, sh- to show what you really know. Not just the questions or things you write down in your, in your seminar, what are, they, what are they called, in your classes. But a test is to show what you actually know. And so when it says God tested Abraham, the point is, what is this man's faith really made of? Abraham had been given much by God and it says he had faith. In those things. He had faith in those promises. And you go through the successes, which we've done in the last 10 weeks. We've gone through the things that God had given him, land and family and, and, and money and all of these things that God had given. And God promised a child and he gave it to him. Here's the important part of the test that I think we have to ask ourselves, even on this Easter Sunday. And I don't, mean, I don't want this to be really heavy. I'm going to go through this rather, rather quickly, which means there's going to be some lingering questions at the end. But here's the question of the test. That, that, that God is, is, is telling us this morning. Is my faith simply in what God gives to me or is it in God himself? Is my faith simply in what God's going to give me or is it in God himself? Is it the gifts that he gives or the character that we trust? You follow me? When God calls you down a path and you don't get what you want or what you expected, a path that is sometimes filled with pain and loss, we call that, as I said in communion, we call that death. It's a reality of life that all of us participate in. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, all of us are culpable for. When God calls you down that path, would you still choose him? Abraham, if I didn't give you money, if I didn't give you land, even if I took what you love most away from you, would you still choose me? There is a mystery in this passage of who's the test for? I asked Nikki this question. Who is the test for? Was it for Abraham? In a sense, I think the test was for God himself. 
In verse 12, afterwards, we know the end of the story, but Abraham doesn't up until this point. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Finally, the angel of the Lord shows up. For now, I know. This is God talking. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Well, doesn't God already know? Colin, right? God's omniscient. Colin knows his, knows his doctrine. Doesn't God already know? But now he's saying in verse 12, now that Abraham's actually decided he's going to follow God, now I know? What do we do with that? Like, who's the test for? I think, in a sense, this, this chapter is for God. To delight in the love that is demonstrated toward him. When a human being decides to follow him and by faith trust in his provision. In some sense, this was for God. Was Abraham merely motivated by a desire for personal gain or entrusting love? And God clearly gives him a choice. Verse 2 says, these are heart, and it's supposed to be heart-rending words. He said, take your son, and just to shove the knife even further in, your only son, and to shove the knife even further, whom you love. There's no getting around it. This is not an easy ask. And the text is making that known. And the ESV, which I'm reading right now, maybe your translation has it, but I usually like the ESV, but they they missed a word that's really important because this is very rare in the usage of Scripture when God is asking someone. It really is never applied when God is asking someone to do something. It's usually a, a stark command, but there's a lot of sensitivity in that ask that's not really brought out in the text when we read it in English, but in the original Hebrew, you could insert the word please. Please take your son. There's no denying it. Abraham, would you trust me even with the threat of the loss of the thing you love most? Do you really love me? Please. It's an excruciating decision that's painfully brought out in the text. And God is asking. And he gives Abraham the option of saying no. I just want to say this. Faith is an exchange of love. Sometimes I think we can make it really static. It's like, are you of the faith or are you not? Like, you believe, here's, here's some things that we believe, and it's like, I grew up in Christian, so I'm of the faith. Well, that's not an exchange of love with your personal creator. And it's very obvious from this text that faith is an exchange of love that God is pleased to give because he loves us. Faith isn't merely a, a taking from God. It's a loving exchange that we in turn, as he chooses to love us, that we choose to love him every single day. That's what faith is. God delights in receiving our love. I mean, how great is a marriage where it's like you've, got, you've written on the, 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 the paper. It's like we were, we were just talking to our kids about what the words mother and father-in-law, they were asking why I call dad, dad. They're like, he's not your dad. Well, he's in law, my dad. And I don't know what your background is. You don't have to call your in-laws mom and dad. It was just kind of what I grew up in. I, don't, I just kind of forced it on you guys, too. <laughs> I just did. Dad beat me by one stroke yesterday in golf, too, or Friday. I didn't call him dad then. 
called him something much worse. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just kind of stagnant and static just to say, well, we're legally married, so that's, that's, that's just a reality. We're married. But no, that's not what marriage is. Marriage is an exchange of love. It's where you both make the decision each and every morning to say, I choose to love you again. And God, I think, in this passage, what it's going for. God really delights in receiving our love. He loves to receive when we choose to follow him in love. So with the reality of returning to square one, to Abraham losing everything, his son, the promise, all of those things, what does he do in verse three? So Abraham rose early. This is just a text to us, putting yourself in the shoes of Abraham, how difficult these three days are going to be. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. You see what the text is doing? It's bringing out every detail so you understand where Abraham is at here. Cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose. He's the one that has to cut the wood. Went to the place of which God had told him. And again, to shove the knife in further, imagine being in his shoes. On the third day, he knows what God has asked him to do. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Imagine seeing the place before it even happens. You know what is about to happen. And he sees it coming closer and closer and closer. And man, the text just brings out the agony of this walk, this Bible narrative that you're supposed to feel it with every single detail. It's a haunting story, but it's beautifully written literature. And he bears this without telling anybody. It's just him. He bears this alone. No one else understands his pain. You know, when someone else says, and you're going through something really hard, and someone says, oh, yeah, I know how you're feeling. No problem. I got through it. You want to just, okay, forget, right. I'm sure you do. No one else understands his pain. He has to prepare the wood. On the third day, he looks and sees the place, and they go on alone in silence. And Abraham doesn't break the silence. His son Isaac does. And Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Imagine in Abraham's shoes, your kid asked that question. I mean, I'm turning around and going back down at that point. I'm like, okay, forget it. Breaking the silence, Isaac speaks. God will provide for himself the lamb. Then they come to the place. It says Abraham builds, builds the off, offer, ties up his son, reaches out his hand. Every single agonizing, brutal detail is brought in the text. He reaches out his hand, takes the knife to kill his son. How is this happening? It just seems so wrong. You know, you're getting this place in life where you're like, God, how did I get here? Like, this feels so wrong. Why'd you lead me to this place? A couple things that are really important. A couple things that you need to know as we try to understand and wrestle through this. Abraham knows the character of God. 
Abraham knows the character of God. And so why does Abraham go through with this really agonizing thing? Because he knew that God was good, even if it doesn't seem like it in this chapter. He knew that God was good, and his character could be trusted. Not just his plan, but his character could be trusted. See, when Abraham receives this instruction, I mean, God is saying, sacrifice your child. Well, later on in the Bible, God is going to strictly prohibit child sacrifice. And one of those ways, in ancient, in ancient societies, I don't know how much it was practiced, it's not really known, but child sacrifice was practiced in that day. And one of the largest contrasts between the law that God had established for his people and the surrounding cultures that were around the people of God was this thing called child sacrifice. God strictly prohibits anything associated with it. Even things that are hard to understand for us, like the laws against tattoos. Well, back then, tattoos were in worship to a false god that demanded blood of children. So God says, don't have anything to do with that. You understand what I'm saying? It just seems inconsistent with his character now that he's asking for a child sacrifice. But Abraham knew that God was good and his character could be trusted. Micah 6, verse 6 to 8, which is a beautiful passage of scripture. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, O people. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Abraham knew the character of God. Somehow God's got to stop this and show up, because he knew his character. Somehow God's going to show up. I don't know when. I don't know how. I'm confused to no end, but somehow God is going to show up. Secondly, Abraham knew the word of God. So he knew his character, and he knew the word of God. That the word, his plan, his will was good, and his promise could be trusted. Isaac was the promised child. I believe Abraham knew at some point God's got to stop this. I'm, I'm, I'm walking forward in obedience, but God has to. Isaac can't die. Or else we've got a huge problem. We've got a huge conflict of interest because God said, through Isaac, this is the promised child. He can't die. Some clues you get from the passage in verse 5. It says, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. He says, I and the boy will come back down the hill. He somehow knows, I don't know how God's going to do it, but I trust him. And somehow... Isaac and I have to come down together off that, off that mountain. I don't know when God's going to intervene, but he's got to. Not only that, it says in verse 8, uh, Abraham said, when Isaac said, Who, uh, where's, the, where's the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. He'll show up. He's got to. He's got to show up. Even Hebrews 11 later on, which some of us studied if you're in Bible studies uh, back in the, recently, was it? Yeah, it was. It was just, was it the fall or just winter? In the winter. Hebrews 11 kind of gives us a glimpse into the mind of Abraham. It's almost as if, uh, 
or sorry, uh, Hebrews 11 says Isaac is the promised child, and even if God has to raise him from the dead, now, my heart is glad that in the passage, God intervenes before that happens because you've got some serious questions of faith if, if God allows the, the death to go through. But it says in Hebrews 11, Abraham believes that somehow this is the promised child. God's already promised him. His word can be trusted. And down to the very last second, Abraham obeys. And finally in verse 11, Abraham, Abraham, And he says, here I am. Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. God shows up. And as Hebrews 11 says again, it was almost as if Abraham had received his son back from the dead. That's what it says. It was almost as if Abraham received his son Isaac back from the dead. Now, This story is of one man's faith and God delighting in that faith. But I think there's also something a lot more going on. God is pointing to something far greater than simply this story. Because there was another father. Right? Who had to agonizingly lead his son. His only son the son whom he loved. The son who came like Isaac from a long-awaited miraculous birth. A son that, like Isaac, had to carry the wood on which he was going to be killed. The innocent one, like Isaac, who sees the place from afar as Jesus sets his eyes toward Jerusalem and sees the place where he's going to die and chooses to go anyway. The innocent one, like Isaac, who was led up a hill in silence. Like Isaac, consented to being sacrificed. But it wasn't the knife of a man, but it was the nails of Humanity, driven through his hands, driven through his feet. You see what God is showing us in this passage? You see what he's showing Abraham? The agony that you feel, that, you're, that you feel toward your son right now, I feel that. I feel it even more than you do. Because I had to lead my son, my only son, to die in your place. I'm in agony. The pain of seeing your son not be spared like Isaac was. But nails really driven through his hands and his feet. And he did it because he loves us. Because he loves you. While God spared Isaac... Because Isaac could not do what the later promised one Jesus could do, as it says in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. See, as I was saying in communion, death represents all that is wrong in this world, whereas God has created life. And nothing can experience life apart from him. 
This was the reality of those disciples on that Saturday. They saw death. Even on that Sunday morning, right, as you read the book of Luke, as they make their way to the tomb of Jesus where he's buried, they don't have, they don't have like banners and streamers and party hats with them. What do they have? They've got burial spices. What did they expect to see? A dead body. Because that's all they know. All we know is death. Even on that Sunday morning, all they expected to find was death. It's all we've known is disappointment, expectations not met, and sin in our own hearts. But God shows up in a big way. Ironically, he shows up by being nowhere to be found. (laughs) I know this wasn't totally about the resurrection, but I think in a sense it is. Because it's a story that is full of hope even though it's agonizing. It's a story of a, a, a heartbroken God willing to give his son, not spare his son for us, but also receive his son back from the dead. God shows up by being nowhere to be found. And the resurrection is the promise of new life. It's the proof that through Jesus, you and the entire world and everything in it can be restored back to life. Death does not define us because of the resurrection. That through Jesus, this experience of death, that's all we've ever known, there can be victory for you and this world. But not only that, as we learned in Genesis 22, the resurrection is also about the reunion of a father with his child. It's not just about you and I. It's a reunion of a father with his child. That through Jesus, this loving relationship that they have can be made whole. But also through Jesus, this loving relationship that was intended for you and I can also be made whole. As Jesus sees his children, as God sees his children, you and I, that through Jesus, it's like receiving us back from the dead. As if one were brought back from the dead. Faith is an exchange of love. So much so that God would do anything that we would choose him. But we have to choose. For those who do, It says in Romans 8, For I am sure that death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? God, thank you for your word. We are blown away by the promise of new life. We are also humbled by the agonizing, heartbroken Father God that we follow. That through Genesis 22, we get a little glimpse of the agony that he went through as he saw his only son be killed at the hands of men. And he had to watch. but he did it, you did it because you love us. Thank you, God. I will never understand 
I will never understand what you went through for me. But Lord, we celebrate that you, your son has been brought back to you. That as if he's, not, not as if, as it says in Hebrews 11 in Isaac, the one who did come back from the dead. Lord, that through Jesus, myself and anyone in this room who chooses to follow you in faith also can be restored to you in love and relationship as if we came back from the dead. Lord, may some make that decision today that they would choose to love you. Pray for all these things in your great name. Amen.